You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast, westpacwire.com.au. Recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders has been an important issue for generations. In the past year, we've seen the powerful Uluru Statement from the Heart and the recommendations of the Referendum Council. Building on this, we've seen constitutional think tank uphold and recognise publish a series of options for constitutional recognition for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I'm Siobhan Tuhill and I lead sustainability here at Westpac. And joining me in the studio today is Sean Gordon, Aboriginal leader and chair of Uphold and Recognise. So Sean, maybe if you could explain a little bit about um, your role and your background, um, and then we can have a conversation around um, the work of Uphold and Recognise. Yeah, so I'm a um, uh, Barkindji Wonkamara man, originally from uh, um, far southern Queensland and far western New South Wales. And I grew up in a little town called uh, Brewarana. Um, pretty much spent all of my um, early early uh, youth there. Um, I've been involved in Indigenous affairs for a long time and uh, um, with uh, some work that, that Westpac have been involved in around empowered communities. Um, I've also been um, involved in another program called Jarwin that Westpac are also involved in. And uh, now I, I chair an organisation called Uphold and Recognise. And Uphold and Recognise um, is a, I, I guess, an organisation established um, to uh, speak to conservatives around um, Indigenous recognition, um, but to uh, give people comfort comfort that we can recognise Indigenous Australians whilst whilst also upholding the the Constitution, um, and which I think is important for a lot of Australians is. Um, people don't necessarily understand the detail of Indigenous recognition, but they do um, want to know that <clears throat> that um, politicians are uh, making the t- decisions and not the courts. And so we've done detailed work to demonstrate that that can happen. Now, Sean, lots of work um, was shared last year and we saw the Uluru Statement from the Heart and we also saw um, our recommendations come through um, from um, groups like the Referendum Commission. I wonder if you could start with explaining a bit about um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Well, I think what's unique about the the um, the Uluru Statement, and I'll go back to I'll go, I'll go back to uh, how it how it started. I guess that um, leading up to the convention uh, in May last year, there uh, were thirteen regional dialogues held around the country, and those thirteen regional dialogues brought um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people together um, to talk about the things that, are, that impact um, them in their daily lives, um, to talk about how they um, want to be represented into the future and uh, how, they see that, um, how they see their voice um, is heard into the future. From those 13 regional dialogues, um, um, people were elected to, to then be able to participate at a, a convention at uh, Yalara uh, near Uluru. And you know, I, I was I was at Yulara. <coughs> pardon me, and it, and it was um, quite amazing being being in that space. Um, I think people going into you know, the, I think there was a lot of um, uh, scepticism about whether uh, Indigenous people could could come together um, um, for a united process and and actually put forward a statement that says. Um, this is how we want to be recognised within our within our uh, own countries, and you know, within less than two days, um, uh, there was good debate, good discussion. But on the, on the third on the morning of the third day, um, we reached an agreement on a statement, and the statement was read out once, 
um, to a standing ovation. Uh, after the standing ovation, uh, a resolution was put to the floor that, that the 250 delegates um, uh, accept the statement. Um, and that's how the Uluru Statement was born. Um, and the Uluru Statement, and there's a lot of misconception out there about the Uluru Statement as, as to who it was, um, um, who the Uluru Statement was developed for and messaged to. Um, and people generally think that it was messaged to politicians. Uh, in fact, the Uluru Statement was a message to the rest of um, our fellow Australians um, as a gift to say, this is how we would like to move forward with you. Um, uh, and how we'd like to establish uh, this new relationship um, that recognises our rightful place, that recognises your place within the country, um, and then how we start to move forward together. And central within the Uluru Statement is the idea of truth-telling. I wonder if you could explain that a little more. Well, truth-telling is something that, um, you know, we, we've we've jumped around for a long time um, uh, people get uncomfortable with with wanting to hear about um, how the how the country was um, discovered, how it was colonised. Um, but for us, we don't we don't see um, truth telling as being a negative. Uh, you know, the the best example I've seen around the country of truth telling is um, the uh, Mile Creek Massacre celebration, and the Mile Creek Massacre celebration is, is quite unique in that it brings, um, you know, it's a story where. Um, a, a group of non-Indigenous um, people um, uh, killed and 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 murdered uh, twenty nine or twenty eight uh, Aboriginal um, women and children and men um, at Mile Creek. And today there is a celebration that takes um, place in May every year that brings the um, descendants of the perpetrators together with the descendants of the, the, the families who were, who were killed. Um, and they come together as a form of healing to um, recognise that something was wrong, um, but we've got, to, we, we, we've got to come up with ways as to how we can move forward together. And that for me, and I, I've had the, the opportunity to, to, um, to go to that, uh, uh, the, the Mile Creek Massacre anniversary, and for me, it's the most moving um, ceremony I've been mm. to, because it talks of truth, but it talks of, it, it talks of a solution and a way forward um, that doesn't allow um, us to deny the past. It doesn't allow us to um, uh, as us as Indigenous people to dwell on the past, but allows us all to move forward. And so, what we're asking for as Indigenous people is, you know, we want the truth of our history recognised, um, both good and bad. Um, but we believe that this will be a part of our healing as we move forward. Um, and it'll actually, we also believe that it'll do more to bring the country together as a nation building exercise. And it's something that we, um, we don't do very well. Um, so, you know, the, the truth telling aspect shouldn't be something that people should fear. Um, I think it's something that we need to embrace um, and look at then how we, how we learn from our past to be able to build a better and stronger future. And then building on, uh, I guess, the ideas within the Uluru Statement and the recommendations of the Referendum Commission, um, Uphold and Recognise is now putting forward um, a series of options, but framed around three key areas. I wonder if we could just step through those key three, those three key areas and, and explore what we actually mean by those. So firstly, if you could explain around hearing Indigenous voices, what's meant by that, what, what you're seeking to achieve around, around that key idea. 
Well, hearing Indigenous voices is really about setting up a structure that um, that empowers Indigenous people um, at at all levels within society. Um, our aim is that we want we, we want to be able to um, uh, ensure the, the principles of subsidiarity exist within a community, and so that um, everyday people are able to put forward their concerns. Um, of issues that they're dealing with in their community and that they're fed up through a process. And and being fed up to a process, it's it's uh, a, a process that uh, sits outside of parliament that doesn't have uh, uh, veto rights, um, but it has a proper Indigenous representation that ensures that it has enough weight that uh, governments of the day um, may take that advice seriously. Um, so... You know, the the voice is really making sure that um, those things that impact us every day, legislation, policies, uh, programs and funding, um, that, in, that Indigenous people are having input into those things um, to ensure that they have a positive impact rather than a negative impact. Um, and, and, you know, those an example of those types of things is native title. Um, if we go back to the um, uh, what the federal government termed as the Northern Territory Emergency Response, um, we've determined it, we, we've termed that as the Northern Territory Intervention, um, b- because in most cases it it had a negative impact on Aboriginal people within that particular community. So we're really trying to push to ensure that um, the decisions that governments are making um, for us. Um, shift to where they're making decisions that they're making decisions with us and those decisions um, are really about getting the policies programs funding and legislation right um, and also shifting away from this one-size-fits-all model um, that's that's currently pushed out of parliament so it sounds to me that it's, you know, it's a shift from consulting to actually making the decision in a more integrated way with Indigenous people. Um, so it's a shift from the kind of the model of where there's been councils or commissions to actually um, a more direct um, involvement. Well, the, the you know, the, the <clears throat> I guess the words coming out of the um, uh, the Prime Minister and the opposition leader at the moment is that they want to shift away from doing things to Aboriginal mm. and Torres Strait Islander people um, to doing things with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we believe the best way to do things with us is through giving us a voice uh, and a say in our own affairs. Um, now, people might question, uh, why should Indigenous people you know, have a, a special voice? Um, the, the reason for having a special voice is that Parliament already has special powers to make decisions on behalf of Indigenous people. What we're saying is that we want to say in those decisions before you make them. Um, so, uh, you know, and we're, we're really um, uh, unique in that sense that um, the parliament does have this special power. It, it, it doesn't have this power for any other people in the country except for us. The second component is the, the makarata, the coming together after a struggle. Um, and when I've been reflecting on this or talking to others, you know, some have said, oh, is this a treaty by another name? Perhaps if you could explain what is meant by makarata and, uh, and what the vision is here. Yeah, so it's about two two parties coming together after a struggle. Um, look, we we've in our um, work through Upland and Recognise, we've not used the the, the term treaties. Mm. Uh, but if if the country actually, um, if we have a good look at what already happens across the country, we already have lots of forms of treaties. Um, uh, through native title, we have indigenous land use agreements. Um, the Noongar over in Western Australia um, 
uh, people from the Perth area uh, have just signed a, an agreement with um, the Western Australian government. Um, the Victorian government are going through a process of um, treaty making at the moment. And so, you know, this concept of treaties uh, already exists within the country and Indigenous people are already signing treaties um, in different forms or, or, or another. Um, what we're proposing um, is establishing a, a body, a commission, a Makarata commission, um, to help negotiate um, the agreements between Indigenous um, people and the parliament and and formalising those formalising those agreements so that they do become binding, um, that Indigenous communities have a responsibility that they need to uphold in, as a part of those agreements, um, but governments also have a responsibility that they need to uphold as a part of the agreement. Right now, there isn't anything um, that we have other than going to an election um, that keeps government um, to account around the things that they have a responsibility for. And so for us, Makarata is... Uh, really about, again, strengthening the relationship, um, but ensuring that agreements um, agreements are made with us um, and, not again, not made to us. And then the third component or the final component is around this idea of a declaration. So where would that declaration sit and, and what would it potentially look like? Well, the declaration for us is really um, uh, something that comes at the end of the process. Um, so, as we, you know, we, we finalise a, a voice for Indigenous people, as we finalise um, a uh, the Makarata um, for Indigenous people, and as we finalise uh, the truth telling um, that needs to take place in the country, um, the declaration then is a real is is really about uh, you know recognising. Um, our whole history, um, our 65,000 year Indigenous history, uh, British settlement and British contribution um, to who we are as a country today, and um, uh, migrants who have who have moved from their homes and have come and settled in the country, and th- and that's about um, accepting that we've all contributed to what is today. I think I I believe is one of the greatest countries um, on earth. Um, so. Uh, I think it's I think it's important for the I think it's important for the country because we you know we're a very we're a very diverse country but um, you know I I look across the country at the moment and see so many um, uh, so many I, I guess spaces where people have made a major contribution and you look to the center of the country we see the camels running through the desert um, brought here by the Afghan people and we look at the name of the trains that you know um, the Ghan. Um, it's how do we recognise those people's contributions to building the rail line that got us across the country. Um, those things should be celebrated. Um, right now we don't do it and we don't do it well. Um, in fact, we we almost try and deny our history and our past. And so that for us is the, uh, the icing on the cake, is getting through a, a fuller declaration of who we are and what what makes us unique as, our, as a country and how do we strengthen our identity. And bringing it together for all Australians. And I guess it comes back to the idea of truth-telling as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, as we reflect on how we move from reconciliation to recognition, I think really a a helpful frame for this conversation. Um, When I reflect on this, the opportunity is very much around um, greater empowerment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and that sort of idea of enabling improved wellbeing and economic outcomes for Indigenous Australians. And I know you've done lots of reflecting on what this has meant in other parts of the world. Perhaps if you could share what that potential could be. Well, the potential, you know, 
It's it's estimated that uh, by 2030 that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will own about 60% of the the country, um, and they'll own that they'll own that land in different forms and and um, through whether it's through native title, whether it's through land rights, um, whether it's through existing structures um, of government through the Indigenous Land Corporation um, or Indigenous Business Australia. Um, I guess what what we're aiming for is ensuring that that it's not just about owning the land, but the land then um, provides us with uh, an opportunity to build an economic base. And the economic base then is to be able to sustain culture and um, support the development of social programs within our communities. Um, right now, um, Indigenous contribution in the country is about um, uh, $6.6 billion um, through a recent report that's been released. Um, but when I looked uh, to um, our brothers and sisters in New Zealand, the Maori economic contribution to the country is about $50 billion per year. And um, the Maori uh, have a treaty in place, but they also have practical um, processes in place that support Maori development. Uh, and when I say Maori development, I, I don't just mean economic development, but I, I mean um, cultural development, social development, um, Maori language is embraced, um, dual naming is embraced. You know, there, there are a whole range of things that go towards this process of recognition. And uh, I would love to, you know, I'd love to see that um, people are able to um, hear, listen and speak um, Indigenous languages in, in this country, <clears throat> that we're able to um, celebrate dual naming and um, not get stuck in spaces where we think uh, you know, um, something shouldn't be named because of a, of a particular story that's attached to it. Um, Truth-telling can, truth can allow us to, I guess, um, celebrate um, whether it's particular statues um, or particular days or whatever it is by us being able to... to share in the in the you know the the, the nation's story uh, as you now launch um, these series of um, options um, through uphold and recognize um, what's your message to Australians around why they should care around recognition well I think the first reason we should care is that um, uh, indigenous people have been crying out for a long time um, I, I've you know when we when we look back to um, uh, 1770, when 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 Captain Cook first put a, a flag um, in the ground up in the Cape, uh, and then 1788, when um, when Philip arrived on the shores, um, Indigenous people have been asking um, for a, a process that recognises our rightful place. Um, in in recognising our rightful place, we generally believe that it, it's about bringing the country together. When you read the Uluru Statement, it it is a gift to the country. Uh, and if people read it and understand it and see it, um, they will know that it's a plea from us to say, we, you know, we want you to come on this journey with us. Um, and there are some truths in the statement as well, you know, I, um, that, that talks about Indigenous incarceration, that talks about um, the removal of kids and, and a whole range of things. We believe through proper recognition that we can actually address those systemic problems um, that have occurred through colonisation um, by us being empowered to take control and responsibility for the things um, within our communities. And we generally believe that recognition is the pathway to doing that. 
Well, thanks, Sean. Thanks for joining us today. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how Australia has this conversation in response to the work produced by Uphold and Recognised. So thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. And um, thank you to Westpac for all their support. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.